It's hard to imagine a worse mismatch between the extent of mental health needs and psychological suffering that goes on in the U.S. across all ages, cultures, races, and ethnicities, and the system that's intended to help. Yes, the services and the dedicated mental health professionals and the medications and the insurance and the financing do sometimes line up and do help. But often, patients struggling with mood or anxiety wind up manifesting their problems either implicitly or explicitly with whatever part of the healthcare system they can access and whether or not the providers are particularly trained to deal with mental health. So this is just one of the important facts on the ground right now, driving the case for greater awareness of mental health issues throughout the healthcare system so a greater set of skills can be deployed wherever and whenever patients may need them most. What does this actually look like, however, in practice? So we're going to find out more from some front runners who are building models that have primary care and behavioral health working more collaboratively, discovering how to create a shared view of the same patient, imagine that, and a patient-centered medical home that appreciates the interrelationship between physical and mental health. Practitioners of body and mind working together on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you biweekly, and also you can find us later on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. There is nothing easy about going against the grain of how treatment for physical and mental health have historically evolved and operated, very separately for the most part. Among the challenges, how to bring about greater integration and encourage overlapping skill sets among professionals without demeaning anyone's training or diminishing what can be unique and uniquely painful for patients who are in the midst of psychological distress. If you're somebody who likes to use Twitter to send tweets, uh, please consider doing so and use the hashtag IHI in your tweets. Our Twitter handle here is at the IHI. Let me now introduce our guests. And as always, I want to remind people that there are longer bios and all sorts of achievements and accolades that you can find about our individual guests today on their own organization's websites as well as on IHI.org. Benjamin Miller is an assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Colorado Denver School of Medicine, where he is the director of the Office of Integrated Healthcare Research and Policy. Dr. Miller is a co-principal investigator and co-creator of the National Research Network's Collaborative Care Research Network and has been the principal investigator on several federal grants examining mental health and primary care integration. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. Great to be here. All right. Terrific. Brenda Reese Brennan is the Mental Health Integration Director of Primary Care Clinical Programs at Intermountain Healthcare in Utah. She is a medical anthropologist and psychiatric nurse practitioner and leads Intermountain Healthcare's adoption, diffusion, diffusion excuse me, and evaluation of clinical integration for mental health and primary care. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you. All right, you're there. Mara Hubberly serves as project director for one of the first SAMHSA primary and behavioral healthcare integration projects located at the Greater Nashua, that's Nashua, New Hampshire, Mental Health Center. This initiative aims to improve the physical health status of individuals with serious mental illness in community-based behavioral health settings. Glad you're with us, Mara. We'll get your bio slide up there as well, coming right up. 
and I want to, I assume always people know what SAMHSA stands for, but uh, not to fall prey to too many acronyms, it stands for Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. So glad you're here, Mara. All right, and Melissa Merrick is here as well. She's a licensed clinical social worker currently working as a behavioral health consultant, clinical supervisor, and administrator with various outpatient medical clinics at South Central Foundation in Anchorage, Alaska. Prior to this, Melissa worked as a member of an integrated primary care team, helping the team address the emotional and behavioral needs of their clients. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. So let's get started with Ben. And, uh, you know, as I always try and remind everybody as we get going, we are going to get snapshots from everybody. Uh, we feel on balance it's neat and very helpful to get a nice view of a number of things that you can follow up on and pursue uh, in greater depth. And we hope that we can give you at least a feel for some of the really interesting work that's going on. It's by no means all of it. And that's That's one of the reasons with chat today we hope to hear from many of you about the work that you're doing as well. All right, Ben Miller, um, I kicked off today sort of referencing the ways in which modern healthcare has maybe at some level created this artificial uh, division between physical and mental health because it doesn't ever have seemed to have been about patients' lived experiences as much as how the fields developed. So that has laid the groundwork for very distinct paths to services within healthcare, and now we have a whole movement to kind of bring things back together again uh, with this integration idea. So I wanted to just start off with that kind of big lofty question about how have we gotten there, uh, and what does this effort uh, at integration look like? What's the rationale for it? Thanks a lot. Yeah, that's a great question, Madge. And, you know, I think integration is resonating so much now with folks in the field because we're really starting to recognize that in order to impact on things like the triple aim, we're going to have to drive at the heart of the American healthcare system and address fragmentation. At the root cause of fragmentation, I think we find several guilty culprits. However, none appear to be more guilty than the separation of the mind from the body or mental health from physical health care. In this battle for connecting the mind and body, it's seen every single day in the largest platform of healthcare delivery, primary care. You know, more care for mental health, behavioral health, and substance use is provided in primary care than in any other healthcare setting, period, bar none. However, the historical fragmentation that has divided the mental health system from the physical health system has really meant that collaboration between these two providers, uh, primary care and specialty mental health, is a challenge. And this lack of integration remains a barrier to improving quality, outcomes, and efficiency of the delivering of care. So having two separate systems to take care of of patients' medical and behavioral health needs really can result in high cost, low satisfaction, poor outcomes, including premature mortality. So, I mean, literally, now, if having two separate systems to treat the singular construct of health was sufficient, it seemed to have been able to work by now. But scientific evidence just really won't allow, allow us to proceed as if the brain and the behavior are separate from the body. Treating one condition at a time, whether it's a mental health condition or a physical health condition, without really taking into account their inseparability, as you were suggesting, results in poor outcomes and higher costs rather than a value proposition. So let me take that notion just a step further. In 1996, the Institute of Medicine wrote a really a seminal report on mental health and primary care that concluded that it, the two were inseparable and any attempts to separate the two would lead to inferior care. So it's been well known for over two decades that primary care and mental health are inseparable, but yet the healthcare system continues to operate it's not, as, as if it's not. 
So, and what's great about this is that we're seeing more studies come out demonstrating this inseparability of mental from physical. We're seeing a widespread adoption of models that are really starting to hone in on why we can't treat just one part of the person. You know, take, for example, the bidirectionality of diabetes and depression and how, you know, they are both mental and physical health, how they impact on one another. Or when depression and diabetes are both addressed, positive diabetic and depression outcomes are generated. Or depression worsens chronic disease and is worse when co-occurring with chronic disease, more so than the impact of multiple chronic diseases without depression. So there is a robust evidence base that really hones in on why it is important to take care of the whole, and integrated care is a solution to that. So in response, models of care that incorporate mental health, behavioral health, and substance use into the organization and delivery of primary care have proliferated, as we'll hear today. And there is indeed a robust literature base to support these models, which I'm sure my colleagues will talk about. However, in the face of what we know and these indisputable facts, we still have that fragmentation in our training, how we pay for care, and how we deliver care. So the construct is not a new idea. Uh, we've been trying to better integrate care for a long time. The difference is that now we are factoring in mental health, behavioral health, and substance use. Uh, language is pretty important here, and I'm sure we'll have some discussion around language. Uh, there's actually been lexicon created for things like integrated care. And these documents that have come out are really kind of directional for the field and give us a place to look to to better use consistency with how we define what we mean by integration. So just in conclusion, integration is a, an ideal topic for anyone interested in creating a more comprehensive, effective, and efficient healthcare system. All right. Thank you so much, Ben, and we'll hear more from you in just a few minutes, and I appreciate your kind of laying out that framework for us. Um, I'm going to turn now to Brenda Reese Brennan at Intermountain, uh, where mental health integration has been going on now for actually quite a while. And uh, so that gives Brenda and Intermountain, excuse me, an opportunity uh, to not only talk about what they've been doing, but kind of what impact it's had and what they've learned along the way in terms of delivering better care and better outcomes. So, Brenda, over to you. Thank you. So, um, a little bit of the landscape of Intermountain that many of you may be familiar with is we're a non-for-profit integrated delivery system. We have about 23 hospitals, over 185 primary care and specialty clinics, uh, a medical group that employs 1,000 physicians and 300 uh, advanced practice, and then a health plan of about 600 uh, members as well. And the mission of Intermountain is to provide excellence for care for uh, folks in Idaho and Utah, regardless of their ability to pay. And the reason I wanted to share this is because of all the clinics where we have our mental health integration team, uh, in our rural areas, only 7% of them are our own health plan and 25% are uh, in the urban areas. So we really provide care for all patients that come into our primary care clinics. We train all physicians and staff, and we treat all the uh, all the conditions that are there. Intermountain is organized through clinical integration and our mental health integration program is part of our primary care uh, clinical program. So basically, we've been doing this for about 15 years and let me share with you what I think has happened and what mental health integration is for us at Intermountain. I think for us, we've really changed the culture of primary care. We've standardized a team care process and this team includes mental health as a normal part of every routine uh, medical encounter. And the reason I think this is so important in terms of the fragmentation that Ben was talking about is because what we've been able to do is provide psychological safety and equity, and equity is the key word here, for problems that are taboo and time-consuming in busy medical practice. And when you treat 
mental health equally with, with physical health through these trusting networks of relationships, then the quality of the health exchange improves and you reduce unnecessary costs. And Intermountain has shown this by some of our published um, publications of our outcomes that's available for you all. But we've really done a rapid spread of these sustained teams. So why are they spreading so fast? The equity is part of this. So over 800,000 patients and families come through our clinics a year. And all of those families have access now to a team-based approach that if anything should come up that has a mental health or an emotional component in their visit with their physician or their care provider, that is dealt with right there. So how are our physicians able to do this? Well, we've been able to measure this um, integration by really understanding what is the team process. So we have some teams that are just thinking about it and planning it. We have some teams that have actually adopted the teams. They've recruited staff. They're using the tools. They're working it through. And then now we have a benchmark of routinized clinics that have reached the outcomes. The outcomes have been that we are our patients are in the ER less. Their uh, depression and diabetes management is improved. And also the physicians are happier, patients are happier, and the staff's happier at a neutral cost to the clinic. And then what we were able to say is, well, why is this happening? Why have we been able to do this over such a long period of time? And what are some of the factors there from the patient's perspective and the staff's perspective that actually help us understand some of the key indicators for this? And so we interviewed patients and we interviewed staff that were treated in different levels of integration and implementation, and we were able to verify exactly what I was talking about in terms of equity. Patients in their, in their own voice felt that for the first time their doctor really cared about them as a whole person. And instead of just take these drugs and see you next year, they took the time to listen to the symptoms. They looked at all of the history and they put a plan together. The patients were actively participating in this. And patients who had been suffering from depression since they were 14 were now able to look at that and be able to say, this is just a thing that I can manage just as if I had cancer, I would take my medication and follow my treatment. And patients defined their experience as my whole world does not revolve around my depression anymore. It revolves around the things I want to do with my family. And the biggest change I notice is that it's helped our family get the most out of life. So when patients have access to and are included as members of the team, there are multiple people on the team that are now comfortable, the staff's comfortable with mental health, that they can address these mental health issues, and the right member of the team is activated to help the patient at the complexity that they particularly need. But I will just end by saying that our job is not over and that now for us I think our question is will these outcomes last? And a lifetime you know, of gains and finding ways to be able to broaden this team impact more broadly to the family and to the community uh, because a key factor of our health is the health of others around us. So now we're able to take a look at this and bring the patient's voice and make sure that they are there at the table designing our outcomes and improving our care with us and managing all their chronic diseases. 
Brenda, thank you so much. And so much has been going on at Intermountain. This is why I said at the outset, uh, hang in there with us as we kind of give you really some uh, almost like quick snapshots of what's going on. I did put up on the screen for those of you who are uh, connected via computer, um, just one of the many robust things that Intermountain is tracking. And this has to do with uh, diabetes control and comorbidity. Before I turn uh, things over to our next guest, Brenda, do you want to just speak to that for as just an example of, of something where you can really see integration at work here? Sure. I think that diabetes is a great example. So when patients come into the clinics, um, the majority of the care that's provided for chronic disease can be managed by their primary care doctor, their care managers, and the folks that are around them there. And when it becomes more complex when the diabetes patient comes in and there is then a a depression issue or a substance abuse issue or another health issue that's a little more complex, the physician has the availability and a team around them to address that right away. So it's, it's dealt with by the care manager, it's dealt with by the MA, by the physician, and then they activate the mental health person that is there. So what you see on the slide that Madge put up there is that the diabetic patients then are able to be in better control with their diabetes when their depression is early identified and managed together. So all conditions are treated together, and you help get the health improvements upstream and not until they get so complex that they have to go to the emergency room. Okay, that's very, very helpful. Thank you. And again, if you happen to just be on the phone and you're not connected in with the computer, you can find slides um, at um, IHI.org by tomorrow morning, or you can get them right now by emailing info at IHI.org. Uh, that's if you're only connecting by phone. Otherwise, you can see it right now, and you can download these slides when you uh, get off today's show. But don't go away yet. We have much, much more. Thank you, Brenda. I really, really uh, appreciate that. So we're going from Salt Lake to Nashua, New Hampshire. Mara Hubberly, uh, you and your team have had a government grant to do some important innovation work on the community mental health side of the equation. Um, and I was thinking that you're giving, or you're, you and your colleagues are giving meaning to the adage of meeting patients where they are, sometimes literally, and where they're most apt to benefit. So tell us about the project and what you're learning about integration on the community mental health side of things. Okay, Madge. It's uh, been an interesting experience. We uh, started this, um, we were officially awarded the grant in 2009. It's part of a larger national uh, initiative. Uh, At that point, there were 13 grantees, and uh, now there are 94 grantees. Um, It focuses on what what separated this from other uh, integrated care initiatives was the focus on two things. First of all, the population. These were for this program is for people with serious mental illness, people who have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and uh, oftentimes have multiple comorbidities, um, high rates of obesity, high rates of um, hypertension, uh, diabetes. So they're complex patients. Uh, In fact, when we partnered with our or FQHC, I think they refer to them as the walking ICU. And uh, so one of the uh, things about this program was recognizing that for these individuals, the place where they most felt most felt at home, what they were considered to be their health home, was the Community Behavioral Health Center. And in some ways it makes a lot of sense because one of the things the Community um, Behavioral Health Center has always focused on was relationship building. And a great part of integration is all about the relationship 
with the team, uh, you know, focusing on the patient. So uh, the bad side of the community mental health center is that usually it has pretty limited resources, and uh, certainly that was the case in New Hampshire. So this grant allowed us to do something that probably would not have taken place otherwise. Uh, the first challenge that we faced, and I think any integrated care project faces, is the, uh, the you know the joining of two cultures. We work together with an FQHC, which is a federally qualified health center, and while they share a lot of the same types of uh, patients, uh, a low income, usually multiple um, you know. Uh, problems in terms of health, it still was two different cultures. And I think one of the lessons that we've learned in this program is that, um, you know, while technology is important, having shared health records and, um, you know, being able to um, quickly get lab results and things like that, one of the things that made this program work for us was the face-to-face encounters with having the team there, having the uh, primary care uh, giver there, having the mental health, uh, whether it be the psychiatrist or the therapist or the case manager, and, of course, most importantly, having the patient. And uh, one of the things that we felt was very important to do in this was to really gather data. Uh, That was part of the process. Important in terms of really trying to, uh, you know, prove the value of this type of program. And as uh, I I have a copy of a report card, which people received every six months, and this was this went to all the team members. It went to the patient, and you can see that there doesn't look like there was a lot of progress in this one. But in some ways, none of these things had really been measured in a community health center before, and we had many people that did make progress in some of these physical health indicators. But the important thing was it was now being looked at and measured and recognizing that, uh, you know, it it didn't do any good to have the best of mental health care if people had serious diabetes and that was being untreated. Uh, Another thing that we noticed, uh, rather than just the individual uh, data, but from a population data standpoint, is our rate of hospitalizations. These were very sick individuals. They are very sick individuals. They have been hospitalized many times, and we noticed a significant decrease in the rate of hospitalizations uh, for this group of individuals. So we know that we're doing something right. We know that this program is working. That is clearly an indicator that, you know, there has been progress. Um, The other thing that we measured was something that uh, wasn't part of the uh, overall national program, but we looked at loneliness. We feel, especially with mental health patients, there is a lot of um, mental and physical health issues that relate to loneliness. So we used the UCLA loneliness scale, and we saw a significant reduction in that as well. And another area that I think we were able to tap into that allowed us to really give patient-centered care is that mental health centers um, have for some time been using making use of peers. These are individuals who have experienced mental health issues but are further along in the recovery continuum and are able to work with other clients and offer, this especially worked in terms of our wellness initiatives. We found that people were more comfortable going to the peer support center. It felt less clinical. That was we were able to engage them more in activities around nutrition, around cooking, around diabetes and exercise. And in that environment, they were allowed to sort of dictate what the uh, what the programs would be about. We have a uh, diabetic nurse educator who's also a chronic disease nurse, and she listened to what they wanted to talk about and would come back and talk. So they set the tone for what the discussion was. The same thing with the nutritionists. They made suggestions. The nutritionists adapted them. So it was really patient-driven. 
And uh, we were fortunate that we have a great peer support center. It also allowed us to do more things for less money. Uh, as much as a grant seems like it's a lot to begin with, when you get to operating it, it can, uh, it can definitely be a challenge. So looking at cost-effective ways to make changes. And going forward, um, you know, our biggest challenge is sustainability. Mm-hmm. We have found ways to sustain um, it through having other state programs, uh, through billing services for the primary care, but I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face going forward with these, some of these integrated care projects. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, one of those uh, questions just lurking there. What happens when the grant uh, goes goes away or the major grant uh, goes away that helped you innovate so well? Um, Mar, before I move on to Melissa, I just want to – somebody did ask a question that is probably maybe on others' mind. Uh, John, if you want to go back to that hospitalization data slide, somebody wondered whether these refer to psychiatric hospitalizations, medical hospitalizations, or both. Uh, psychiatric. Psychiatric. Okay. Okay. Yes. That's very, very helpful to know. Okay. Thank you, Mara. Very, very interesting. All right. Well, uh, we're going to now hear from Melissa Merrick, and I suppose we wouldn't, be, shouldn't be surprised that we can look to South Central Foundation out in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, for some innovation as well, since uh, their road to transformation to best meet patients' needs is uh, pretty well known uh, and well deservedly so. So, Melissa, you in some ways like Brenda as well out at Intermountain. You've had some uh, time at this with integration and I'm curious kind of uh, sort of what it looks like at South Central and uh, whether you've had to revise and sort of change some of what you've been doing as you've moved along and learned uh, along the way. Sure, thanks, Sound. Um, so, you know, South Central Foundation is built on relationships. It drives what we do and how we provide care. And as part of our whole system transformation, we really use that emphasis on relationships and shared responsibility. And shared responsibility includes um, sharing responsibility amongst the integrated care team members, as well as shared responsibility between the integrated care team, as well as our customer owners. So the basis of our primary care and pediatric centers are what we call our integrated care team. And the these team members are comprised of the medical provider, the RN case manager, medical assistant, uh, medical assistant, excuse me, and administrative support team. We also have shared resources for the team, which includes the dietitians, the behavioral health consultants, and integrated pharmacists. So when a couple years ago when we redesigned our clinics, we actually um, created this open floor plan, an open um, space that really, again, drove that relationship and shared responsibility. And part of that came with shared working space, which allowed for a open flow of communication. Additionally, our charts are integrated, so our behavioral health consultants, our dietitians, our integrated pharmacists are all uh, charting in the electronic health record along with the providers so that there's kind of this seamless, constant flow of communication so we're not having the fragmented record systems that we've seen in the past. Um, The behavioral health consultants also see customers in the exam rooms, either before or after visits with the providers. At present, we have a ratio of about one behavioral health consultant to about 30, or I'm sorry, to about three providers. Um, So that's one of the things that we have adjusted over the years. Initially, we started with a ratio of about one behavioral health consultant to about nine providers. And as we've become more integrated, we realized that the work demands really um, required us to have more behavioral health consultants. Additionally, as our system has grown, we've realized that in order to do the comprehensive behavioral health work that we wanted to do in the primary care clinics, we needed that, um, that ratio to be a little bit lower. 
all of our behavioral health consultants are master's level clinicians, and um, we used a step approach, stepped approach in approaching our care with customers. So this includes both a vertical and horizontal approach, looking at um, customers across uh, the population and across acuity levels. So doing uh, preventative work as well as some crisis intervention work. So we screen um, all adults that come through our clinic routinely for depression and substance abuse. This has become kind of a seamless part of our system at this point. Initially, our customers, um, they didn't really know what to expect with those screenings, but at this point, they've been, we've been doing them in the clinics for several years now, so people just know to kind of expect it. And really looking at, this is a routine part of our care. This is um, talking about somebody's emotional health and um, behavioral health is just as important as their physical health. In children, we do behavioral screenings um, and substance abuse preventative screenings. And then in infants and younger children, we also do development screenings. So we're really targeting across the lifespan. And again, a preventative approach as well as a uh, approach to address issues when they come up. So we're doing brief interventions. We're doing um, screenings in the room. And then depending upon what it is that comes out from the visit, either with the behavioral health consultant or the provider, we can move into more advanced approaches using things like motivational interviewing, problem-solving therapy, cognitive behavioral approaches in a brief intervention model. So our goal in the room is really to stay within 20, 30 minutes. And again, we can see folks from, um, see customers a couple of different times. And eventually, if we realize that they need more specialized care, our third approach would, or our third step in the model would be to refer on to things like traditional behavioral health, um, specialty therapy, medication management, that sort of thing. So again, focusing on that stepped approach and really meeting customers where they're at and honoring culture and communicating, pro- promoting goal setting, that sort of thing. So over the years, we've learned lots and lots of lessons. And um, to your question, I think that we're constantly tweaking our model and constantly adjusting what it is that we're doing here at South Central Foundation. We're, we're, you know, very innovative and we're trying to constantly meet meet the needs of our customers and always questioning what we're doing. We really started in the clinics with uh, more screening and crisis management, but as we've been in the clinics, um, the work has really evolved over time. One of the things that I've noticed is that the longer you're integrated into the clinic, the more work there is. Providers really understand how to use you and what it is that the behavioral health consultants can offer. One of the challenges that we've had is really um, training our clinicians for this work and keeping up with the training needs. As the integration work evolves specifically around things like chronic disease management, um, somatization, chronic pain, how do we meet the needs of our customers and make sure that our our providers and our behavioral health consultants are trained appropriately? So that's something that we're kind of constantly playing with. Um, Another thing is really looking at um, how behavioral health consultants can help in specialty clinics, Um, for example, OBGYN and our pediatric clinics. How is it that we can um, work with those clinics but still refer all of our work back to our primary care teams or integrated care teams since we believe those are the hub for our medical care? So, again, constantly challenging ourselves and and changing our models based on what has come up. Some of the things that we found throughout this process is really looking at cost efficiency and how, you know, we are a same-day access clinic. 
so how we can improve costs, decrease costs, and improve them by using our behavioral health consultants. Also looking at time efficiency, so allowing our medical providers, um, you know, allowing them to free up some of their time to focus on the medical needs of the customers while we can really take over the behavioral health needs. And also providing kind of that same-day access for behavioral health care, so there's not this long waiting list, there's not this, um, you know, you can't get in to see a behavioral health person for several weeks. And then job satisfaction has been a big one for us. We've done a lot of uh, job satisfaction surveys, both with our primary care providers and behavioral health consultants, and have found that primary care providers definitely have increased job satisfaction when they have these resources available to them. And in some ways, it takes the burden off them, so they don't necessarily feel like they have to address all of these issues in a quick, you know, 15, 20-minute visit. They do have support for them. So we still are a work in progress. We've learned a lot. We're constantly challenging ourselves to take it to the next level and and, um, find ways that we can continue to meet the needs of our customers. Melissa, thank you so much, and I really thank uh, each of our guests for providing such succinct uh, descriptions of very complicated things that are going on, not only about the patients themselves, but the system-level changes. Um, I'm very mindful of all your questions, which are already uh, popping up in the chat, and we're just about to get to them. I want to just circle back to Ben. Uh, He's going to rev up his voice uh, for for us right now, and I guess I just want to ask before we go to question. So you're somebody who's keeping an eye on the big picture and the evolution. And I'm wondering, as you hear the descriptions today, uh, whether these are the models uh, that tend to be resonating uh, the most uh, around the country. Um, And then we'll get into some specifics with the questions. Yeah, great question. I mean, no doubt we've seen a huge spread of these models across the country. And what's great is that each practice, as you've just heard, who's integrating is doing this in, a, in their own version of way it works best for their community. So many of the models are quite different than what's been seen so prominently throughout the literature, but that's the beauty of integration. Practices are creating the model that's best for them. And, and one thing that I just have to point out that I heard that's so impressive that, that sets the field apart from its history is data. Uh, those of you that just saw the slides that were up there talking about some of the data elements that these practices are collecting, that's a very impressive and mature step in being able to demonstrate that the integration added value to the practice. And what's great is that as we continue to mature in our ability to collect these data, we're not just looking at clinical. We're starting to look at some of the cost data, too, some of the financial elements of this, as well as some of the operational. So I think that integration is going to continue to spread, and we're going to continue to see innovation on the ground like we just heard. Okay, thank you so much. All right, I think we better get to questions uh, before you pile on any more. You've all got a lot of good things on your minds, and thanks for all our guests, uh, to our guests for uh, sort of laying the groundwork. John, very quickly remind people who are maybe already not using the chat how to do so. Yeah, we have gotten a lot of great questions so far, but if you're uh, going to chat in a question, make sure that you send to all participants. That way, Madge and I can see it here uh, in the studio and also everybody listening in uh, on WebEx across the country. Uh, can also see what you're what you've been asking uh, and as our guests as well all right thanks so much all right i i have the unenviable but also enviable task of trying to sort through your questions and group some of them together um i want to uh there's an interesting question here that i thought was pretty provocative uh and it gets to even a question i was thinking about which is uh at what point are some of the mental health issues or what may be going on uh do they sort of overwhelm the capacity of 
primary care to uh, or that environment uh, to deal with them adequately. And somebody is referring to a problem or a, or a tendency in one area of the country, and I'm trying to scroll up so I can find it. Oh, yeah, we, I think she's saying uh, Michigan, having a lot of difficulty for patients with ongoing mental health and medical issues that are discharged from primary care providers because of the complexity of the patient's concerns. Um, so uh, I hate to start out on more of a negative, but let's get into some realities. Uh, is there somebody who might want to take that on as, as far as sort of uh, um, an area that does get discussed in terms of uh, kind of how, how to kind of hold on to these populations uh, and deal with them in a, an effective way as opposed to just turning people loose, I guess? Anyone? I don't mind taking a stab at that. Okay. Brenda. Hi, Brenda. Okay. Uh, because one of the things I was thinking about as we were all sharing our, our innovations um, that I wanted to point out at Intermountain is that um, about 80% of the mental health care is provided by the primary care physician. And so regardless of the complexity and severity of the, the social context of the patient's condition, whether it's one condition or multiple, their ability to be managed in primary care really depends on everybody on the team doing their full scope of their job. And so when you have primary care physicians that are surrounded by experts and everybody is doing their part of the um, of integrating the mental health and, and medical issues and mind-body issues for this patient, then you have many more complex patients that that can be managed. You'll always have those that then you have to decide together as a team, can we get this family well in primary care or do we need to find them a mental health or substance abuse home that will stabilize that predominant uh, disability. But I think patients get discharged when they're complex when primary care teams are, one, not trained and comfortable with the mental health issues and don't feel confident dealing with it, and they don't have the support around them uh, or the institutional mechanisms to actually reward them for uh, working together as teams. So all of those factors have to kind of be there for primary care really to be the best place to begin to kind of build a home for these complex patients. Okay, thank you. Anyone else want to weigh in on that one, or should I move on? Uh, Madge, I, I will. Go ahead. Mara. Um, we have, we also, in addition to the integrated care program we have uh, at the center, we also have uh, a program with uh, our largest uh, primary care provider in the area, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and we're doing the opposite. We're going in for sort of an elbow consult. We have our psychologist in there and two doctoral students in there twice a week. And exactly uh, what was just said, 80 to 85% of the people do not need uh, specialty care. And what our, our psychologist has done is work with the uh, primary care staff, work with the internal medicine staff, work with uh, the Women's Health Center so that they all feel comfortable knowing she's around, but only when there there's very few cases. We've been do, in there for over a year and a half. Very few that actually have to come back to specialty care, but because we have that relationship, they can come back to specialty care in the center. So I agree that the majority can be handled in primary care, but when 
if you reach that point where you know something is needed, it is great to have the mechanism in order to, to move the per- patient to the next level. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to jump to another issue that I see has come up in a few different comments. That is the role of psychologists. There's some suggestion in the chat here that psychologists are perhaps less needed in the integration model or they're not as built into it and maybe are actually kind of getting marginalized in this process. So I'll say it just like that and see who wants to take that one on. Anyone? I think the psychologist will take that one on. So <laughs> I, there, there is definitely a role for the field of psychology within integrated health care. Come closer uh, to the microphone, Dr. Miller. I, thank you. I, I, I want, this psychologist has no voice, obviously. Uh, I, I want to reframe the question ever so slightly, though. Yeah. I think it is what role and what functions do various mental and behavioral health providers play on their team? Because if we, if we look at this in terms of the professions providing uh, various roles and functions rather than their discipline, and what their degrees are, I think it's a very different conversation. So a psychologist may be uh, appropriate in one clinical setting, whereas it may not necessarily be in another. It requires the practices to really be able to assess, you know, the type of provider based on the various functions and roles that they need to complete their dream of an integrated model. Okay. All right. Well, that's, I think it goes to, there's a lot of questions in here about uh, level of preparation and training, and I totally take your point, uh, Ben, and as people are trying to experiment and create models, I guess my question would be, even holding aside the role for psychologists, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about skills and training uh, and kind of what, whether it has to do with a credential uh, or not, but what would you uh, say? Um, let, let's flip it back uh, to Melissa in terms of kind of skills and training on the team. Absolutely. It's a really great question and something that we have really looked at and struggled with over the years. And I think one of the things that we found, particularly here in Alaska with our customers' population is that, and our model of care, um, is that finding the right fit in some ways is more important than credentials and actual previous training. It's kind of a balance of finding somebody that comes with a skill set um, of, you know, a, a generalist skill set that knows a little bit about everything and can have that brief intervention skill set, but isn't stuck in those kind of old school traditional therapy ways. And so most of our clinicians that have come on, a lot of the training has really been on the job training because especially here in Alaska, where our pool of um, applicants is smaller to pull from, we've really had to focus on how do we train people to come in and and prepare them for that work. So one of the things that we've done in the last few years is partner with our two local universities and have created internship programs to really try and um, educate our workforce that's here locally on the work that we're doing and help prepare folks for that skill set. When we hire a new clinician, we often put them through a very rigorous 30 to 45 day training before they're actually seeing customers on their own. And so that can be timely and costly, but we found that the benefit of doing that definitely outweighs um, hiring somebody that has those credentials that you think will work and then putting them, you know, live to start seeing customers and the whole, uh, our model just kind of starts to fall apart. So this has been, it's a big area that we've played with and struggled with over the years. But um, again, I think finding the right fit in some ways is more important than the credentials in our model. Okay. Well, Thank you very much. And I do want to say to people, again, acknowledging uh, how each of these issues that people are asking about uh, is unto itself a program. Um, one of the things, if you check out the chat, you will 
will be you'll see that people are suggesting additional resources where you can carry on conversations and continue to talk about staffing and other issues and skills that are needed uh, and sort of how you uh, kind of get underway. And I, there are several questions here about financing. Of course, there have to be. Uh, Mara Hubberly is talking about a SAMHSA grant that is running out, and they're trying to figure out ways now to sort of migrate um, and transition through other kinds of programs. And uh, Brenda, I know you have a really um, nice uh, slide. I'm going to ask John if he can find this one, the savings to commercial insurance. Um, and uh, that's just as a way of kind of reminding us uh, that, you know, cost issues really come into play here, both in terms of what it means to get going in this integrative model and then how to demonstrate savings and how to get reimbursed uh, for the actual work. Brenda, can you take that, start with that? Well, could I bother you to put one other slide before that one so sure. I can show how we got, how we save this money? Could okay. you put up the uh, the team convergence on the process steps? All right, hold on, gotta find it. Team. Uh, and let me just explain this to everybody. So um, we got the savings and we had all the satisfaction, and then we went in and actually said, well, what's happening in these teams that's producing these savings? So what I really want to point out is that when you have the institutional support and you have been able to change the culture and the leadership like all of us have been talking about, and it's built on relationships like we've all been talking about as well, which goes across all the systems. We asked patients and staff working in the three different levels of of commitment to MHI or um, supported uh, team-based care. And in the clinics that had been doing MHI for the longest and had the robust, robust, high-functioning teams, we asked the patients and the um, staff the same question. And we said, walk us through the steps. What happens when you come in and see, see your physician or your provider? Tell us what happens when something about depression or mental health or a social issue comes up. Walk us through what happens from the minute you start talking about it with your provider to actually you take action. And we asked the staff to define the same thing. And what you'll see on this slide is that the patients and staff ag- agreed on seven key elements of an organized process, which is the standardized process that you measure so that you can see the impact of screening, uh, treatment plans, discussing it, and follow-up. You can see the impact of that on the cost savings we got. And what you see happened is that the, the physician explained the depression or the mental health issue. They then screened for it using some kind of a standard tool. They talked about the results. What does this mean to you? What does this mean to me? They then discussed options. And then they activated some form of medication if it was appropriate, or then they activated a team, which many of us have described the different team roles. The patient was an active member. Uh, It could have been a care manager. It could have been the mental health person. The physician still had to do their part. It could have been a NAMI mentor, a peer advocate. And then there was a follow-up plan. And what you see here in this slide is that the, the actual standard of care that we trained our staff and all those providers that went through it to train and do it the patients actually reported seeing it and receiving it. And that, to to us, is what we have interpreted as why we have been able to produce the cost savings, because the patients and the staff were actually coming together, and in this relational um, team-based care, they were being... uh, there was an improved sense of quality, and now you can go to the other other slide, Matt. Yeah, we threw that one up, yeah. Uh Uh-huh, yep. Okay. 
then what happens when you have this efficient team and everybody gets activated at the right point and back to the team roles, the patient has a critical role. The patient has to participate and engage in what they're doing and work on so many things with their family and being at home. Then you actually see the cost savings. And the cost savings here is really important because it's not just mental health savings. This is all other specialty related. Are they in the um, medical situation? Is laboratory, other outpatient visits? So you spread the cost savings across all the possible utilization of healthcare when you integrate the mind and body together for the treatment of depression in primary care. And that's what I think is the key to, to some of the cost savings and not so much focusing on what did my mental health person cost and did I save money on the mental health side. You really mm-hmm. have to look at the whole population of savings. Thank you so much. Ben, I want to ask you something. Uh, we're, we're, don't go away, everybody. We still have got some minutes here, but uh, partly to deal with what I see is uh, so many really, really good questions. What's the best way right now? I, somebody made reference in the chat to a LinkedIn group. Uh, is there kind of a good uh, way that the discourse is taking place uh, kind of across the country um, or even globally, for that matter, on this issue of integration where people can find each other? and kind of ask questions, uh, get as nitty-gritty as people want, such as how do you bill for primary care and mental health on the same day? Um, but uh, the, I'm just noting a lot of these things. Are, is there kind of a, a listserv of any sort? There's lots of resources out there, Madge, and let me give three that I think people may want to pay attention to. Uh, first of all, I've been giving links in the chat here today that there are two websites that I think where the community can start to be engaged around some of the work on integration. Uh, one of them is uh, in the integrationacademy.arc.gov. That's a agency for healthcare research and quality uh, resource that's really a one-stop shop for a lot of the stuff we've talked about today. The other is a the, the SAMHSA HRSA tool around, or excuse me, SAMHSA a HRSA website on, uh, powered by the Center for Integrated Health Solutions that looks at integration as well. And then the third one I would really think that folks would want to pay attention to, it's a great place to have a community, is the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Uh, this is a national not-for-profit association that's all about uh, team-based care that doesn't necessarily represent uh, guilt, but really is about a community that's all striving to achieve the same things that we've been talking about on the call today. Okay, very, very good. So I'm going to make sure one of those was listed on your resources slide, and then you listed two others that weren't, but we'll make sure that we get them into our resource uh, document. John, do you want to very, very quickly um, mention a um, couple things we want to draw people's attention to, and then we'll get to a couple more questions and wrap up? Yeah, of course. Um, well, you know, Madge has not mentioned this yet, but we are taking a little bit of a break uh, in our August so we can recharge our batteries and start to work on the slate of programs programs that begin on September 12th with our WIHI on mobile health clinics and population health. But that shouldn't stop you from catching up on some of 2013's best programs. You can head over to IHI.org backslash WIHI and browse our archives or just search IHI in the iTunes store to access the WIHI podcasts. That way you can take them in the car, you can take them to the beach, you can listen while you mow the lawn, um, and any other summer activities that you may be up to in the month of August. So um, yeah, catch up with WIHI. Try this summer. Thanks a lot, John. Um, there, there's always a great 
question in the chat, and I really appreciate it because folks are at really, really different stages of this. And that is, what about first steps? Um, let's say you are, you know, fired up by this conversation today, and it all makes sense in terms of all kinds of things going on in healthcare right now, in terms of payment reform, et cetera. Um, sort of how how you get started. Who who has a sort of a feel for, you know, who who makes the first move here in um, getting a discussion going? Ben. <laughs> I'm picking on you. Come right up to the microphone. <laughs> I uh, yeah. I mean, th- th- I'm totally. Uh, Madge, I'm sorry. I totally missed that last part of your question. My that, microphone cut out and my earpiece cut out. That's quite all right. It was more first steps. I mean, you know, sort of how how obviously listening to today's program, uh, checking out the resources, beginning to see through chat that folks have others that they can maybe follow up with who are doing some things. Our guests today are also all people who you can tell um, are more than happy to talk about what they've learned on this journey to help people get started. But um, any thoughts on that? Somebody has asked about first steps. Where, where do we begin? So I think the most important first step that's often not looked at is, you know, who are you serving in your community, and how does this model better address the needs of that community? There's an assessment phase here, and I'm not just saying this because I'm, a, I'm an academic, but I really do believe that integration is a construct. Defragmenting healthcare is good for everybody, but sometimes how we develop these models and what they look like isn't based on who our population actually is that we're serving. So I say that one of the best places to start is just to look at your data. Who are you treating? Who are you working with in your communities? How can you build a model around that? And then, of course, there's websites. There's amazing books out there. I've referenced several of them today that really will give you a one-on-one how-to guide to get started. I I can't uh, impress upon this audience, though, enough that this is not just bringing providers together and having them sit in the same room. It really does require hard work. Practice change is hard. We need to have culture change within our practices to understand that a new way of Delivering healthcare is about an entirely differently and new defined construct, which is health, not mental health, not physical health, but just health. So I would say start with who you got, who are you treating, and move on from there. Okay. Ben, do you find or does anyone else find that some of the trends that are already underway being driven by all kinds of things, but say accountable care organizations, is there any kind of indication of what may be sort of starting to help enable uh, sort of a, a platform for this? Um, ACOs, is that one or not necessarily? Well, sure. Um, and, uh, I wanted to go to that. Go, um, go for it. <laughs> well, for us, one of the uh, paths that we're hoping to take towards sustainability is New Hampshire is looking to w- work with the, the Center for Medicaid Services on a behavioral health homes where CMS will pay for a period of time a, a much larger. 10 split in terms of what they'll reimburse uh, for Medicaid services. So many of the patients we have are Medicaid patients, and so behavioral health home models are something that a lot of states are now looking at. We've had primary ha- uh, care models before, but now behavioral health home models are being looked at and are one resource, especially for um, the uh, behavioral health segment of the population, to be considering. Okay, thank you. Was that Brent? Thank you, Mara. Brenda, was that also you uh, that I was hearing I, from? Yeah, I, I think it's a great opportunity right now. I think that 
Uh, the, the cultural change is already happening across the country that we need to be doing a better job managing uh, fee-for-service does not capture what needs to be captured in terms of prevention and health promotion. And I think the whole movement towards medical homes or organizing teams of care, uh, we're looking at, you know, high rates of obesity, chronic pain. I mean, there's so many indications that we need more than just even our mental health providers on the team. We need to engage nutritionists and physical therapists to manage some of these chronic diseases, as well as the community. Uh, there is a lot of community effort that needs to be organized and pulled together, which is where most of these patients and families live. So I think the, the timing now is excellent, and I agree with Ben. I think know your community, know what your high-level conditions are or some of the social issues that are facing your community and the equity issues in terms of income status. And then the other thing is start with a leadership plan. Uh, who cares about this problem, who has access to the data, and who can put a plan together, and who are the key people. And I would encourage everyone to include our patients and families and customers, as South Central calls them, on the plan. We did that back in, in 2000, and it has been probably what's helped us sustain mental health integration at Intermountain, is that we had patients and families right there helping us design it. Does this make sense? Is this really what you care about? Are we getting it right? And that's who should be de- designing it, and that should be the community that's involved. All right. Well, I'm, you know, with that, because we are absolutely at almost at the top of the hour and we could go on, uh, but I want to thank our guests, uh, Ben Miller, Melissa Merrick, Brenda Reese Brennan, and Mara Hubberly. Um, it's hard for everyone to sometimes know all that goes into creating a WIHI, but all these folks gave of their time generously to talk with me, uh, and to be with all of you today. And I'm sure actually some of them might even be willing if there are a few lingering questions. Uh, we, we might be able to get a few more answers even after today's show. So that will be my pledge to work on that. Um, we didn't, you know, there's all these issues also having to do with people who are struggling with alcoholism, drug addiction, behavioral health is huge. Um, we, in some ways, you know, we had no choice but to paint with a bit of a broad brush, but we hope it did uh, kind of get some things going in your own minds uh, about the work. I want to thank our guests today, a very, very engaged audience as well. Thank you. Uh, Jane Rossner has been listening in and she often gets something up on our Facebook page uh, where you're welcome uh, to add to as well. Uh, As John said, we're taking a bit of an August recess to recharge our batteries, but this program and all kinds of shows are available on our archive pages on IHI.org and we'll be back on September 12th live, that is, on the virtual road with mobile clinics and population health. And a reminder to anyone who isn't clear, uh, when you get off the show, you download, uh, you can download the chat, you can download the slides. We hope you'll fill out a survey. Anything is confusing at all, you can email info at IHI.org. Look for all the resources by tomorrow morning. That's the archived audio and everything else we shared with you today. So we have a great group who helps make WIHI possible. They include Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse. And we have some wonderful music that opens and closes the show. Most of all, though, you, our audience, and our great guests today uh, make this show possible. And it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care and health, most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.